Welcome back to another episode of the Catholic Talk Show. Today we're going to be talking about the legacy of Pope Benedict XVI. That's right. We're joined by Joseph Pierce, the author of the book Benedict XVI, Defender of the Faith, to talk about the legacy of our dear, beloved Pope Benedict XVI. We've been wanting to do a show on Pope Benedict for a long time because he means a great deal to us around the table, and I know he means a great deal to Mr. Pierce, my former professor from Ave Maria University. So, Mr. Pierce, what a pleasure to have you on the show. It's, uh, it's it's good to be with you, and it's good to be with you again, although you didn't have the dog collar in those days. Joseph Pierce, we're really excited to have you, and I know Benedict the Sixteenth is one of my favorite popes. I was uh, a child of uh, Pope John Paul II, and uh, Benedict was certainly a great follow-up and a very dear uh, man and a, a, a immense theologian that just wrote a lot of approachable. Uh, teachings, and I'm um, just really excited to get get going on this. Yeah, my reversion I, is greatly impacted by Pope Benedict the Sixteenth. Um, I, I don't even know if it would have happened otherwise. You know, reading his Life of Christ and you know, as a young father and starting to get back into the faith, that book really solidified uh, the things that were stirring in my heart, moving back towards the faith. So, uh, you know, during his pontificate, I was you know prayed for him constantly, and now that. Uh, you know, I'd always wanted the opportunity to speak with him. And then after he passed away, it realized me that that opportunity is now, that I can now seek his intercession. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's it's a wonderful thing to be able to explore the legacy that this intellectual giant and hopefully one day a doctor of the church has left behind. Oh, it's so true. And, you know, recollecting, you know, from my experience, and I'm the pastor of St. John Paul II. So, it is. It was an honor, you know, to be a pastor of somebody that was so impactful in my life. But I remember mourning and grieving mm-hmm. in April when JP two passed away, and then being accepted to Ave Maria University, and you know, traveling to Southwest Florida to begin my studies. I began my studies with Mr. Pierce and Father Fessio. And to learn that Father Fessio was a student of uh, Pope Benedict XVI and to realize the the lineage of that deposit of faith and the education I was receiving at my alma mater was awesome. My heart immediately opened up and we began studying and walking with this great German shepherd of souls. And what a gift he was truly to the church and what a gift you are to me personally. So to have you on this show means a great deal. I'm very humbled uh, to reconnect with you, Mr. Pierce. And what gave rise to this to this book, particularly Benedict the Sixteenth, Defender of the Faith? Because I see that you have honored Father Fessio actually in this uh, in this book. Well, yes. I mean, as, as you as you say, Father Fessio was a student of Cardinal Ratzinger uh, and uh, knew him well. Uh, Cardinal Ratzinger, and even after he became Pope, um, ha- had regular reunions with with a sort of uh, a, a, a small group of students with whom he felt particularly. Uh, attached, uh, and Father Fezzi was one of those, and Father Fezzi was an old friend of mine and 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 um, great friend of mine, and also the first person to publish me in the United States, so I'm also personally indebted. So it's inappropriate when I wrote a book on on, on Benedict XVI that I should dedicate it to Benedict's uh, great student and and uh, great friend of, of mine. Beautiful. Excellent. So tell us a little bit about this book, and then you know how this plays into 
you know, how we can start to begin to evaluate now the legacy of Pope Benedict XVI, because a lot of popes, you can begin to evaluate their legacy, usually they say, you know, 25 to 30 years after their pontificate. But because he did abdicate and had this longer period of being a, you know, more or less a cloistered monastic pope on behalf of the church, I think his evaluation period might have started a little bit earlier. So tell us a little bit about this book and then how it's starting to shape up Pope Benedict XVI's legacy and the impact of the church. I do think, though, generally speaking, you're correct that, you know, that, that um, the discernment process uh, of for canonization normally requires some sort of time, largely because we are too close to it to be able to see it in in, in its true focus. So I sometimes, I'm, I'm a literature person, and I sometimes talk about the great books. There's a canon of great books, because great books like great saints have to be canonized. Uh, and generally speaking, you know, you, you would not, think about canonizing a book, making it part of the canon, until about 50 years after its publication. So for instance, maybe some of the books of Alexander Solzhenitsyn that were written in the 1960s, so just over 50 years ago, uh, can now be considered canonical. So it is difficult, I think, sometimes to, to, to when you're very close to see something in focus. But in the case of Benedict XVI, as with his great predecessor, John Paul II, the enormity of the legacy does speak for itself. And in that sense, we can say, you know, straight away that this was a giant figure uh, in the church's history, not just in the history of the 20th and 21st century, but in the church's history overall. I mean, the late great Cardinal Pell called uh, Benedict XVI the greatest of the theologian popes. And then we really begin to see what we're talking about here. And the other thing I do want to say is, you know, we have to see Benedict XVI also as Cardinal Ratzinger, because he was um, not just another cardinal of the church. He was St. John Paul II's right hand man for a quarter of a century. Um, so, you know, he he was um, I sometimes talk about John Paul II and, and Cardinal Ratzinger as the dynamic duo. Um, so I don't want to say who's Batman and who's Robin there, but um, there were these the, these two men were the giants that the 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 the, 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 the if you like, that strode across those decades of JP II's um, pontificate, and then of course uh, Benedict stepped into his shoes and carried on that noble legacy. So I, these two men are great men. Saint John Paul II has been canonized already, um, and uh, so one, one might hope and pray that uh, Benedict XVI will follow in his footsteps in that respect also. Very good, yeah. You know, I think that's a really excellent point that you made, is that when you're looking at Joseph Ratzinger, there is almost three chapters of his life that stand on their own because they're so distinct and so particular and unique in the history of the church. So if he had only ever been Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, he still would have been one of the preeminent and most powerful theologians that the church had ever produced. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Then in his pontificate of Pope Benedict XVI, he was the theologian pope. When, like you said, Cardinal Pell said, the greatest theologian pope ever. And then as Pope Emeritus, he set so many precedents and even continued to do some writing. Uh, so there's there's three really distinct periods of evaluation. You know, it's um, so when you're looking at him, it adds to the complexity of understanding his legacy, I think. You know, I, I have to say, too, you know, and I think the impact is very evident, you know, especially from our, you know, conscientious view of, of the church 
in the 20th century and then entering into the 21st century, we were impacted by Cardinal Ratzinger's teachings. Mm -hmm. And we really can't say enough about Father Fessio and Ignatius Press because if it wasn't for Father Fessio and Ignatius right. Press, we wouldn't have had that impact or splash mm -hmm. in the United States. Mm -hmm. that, that impact was certainly felt. So mm -hmm. a big shout out goes out to Father Fessio and Ignatius Press. But as a result of that work of really marketing Pope Benedict's materials as Cardinal Ratzinger, that's how we got to be introduced by the very approachable theologian. We constantly say how JP2's materials are just so dense, and I love reading JP2. I, I'm constantly reading uh, my my patron, my Pope, um, you know, and, and John Paul II. But it's dense. You have to sit down with a, a, a section of that and just like digest it, look at commentaries, figure out people who are kind of interpreting that. What I love about uh, Pope Benedict is his approachability. He is such an excellent teacher, and he, he doesn't dull it down. He doesn't water it down, but his delivery is just so clear and so logical. And so loving. Oh, my goodness. Like, I mean, it's just I can just sense this, the tenderness of his heart as mm -hmm. he's writing this. It's true. You know? Absolutely. I felt that, too. And I think <clears> you made the great point that as a teacher, and, and Mr. Pierce, you as a teacher— I think that lent to his ability to deliver these teachings with clarity so that they could be delivered to the audience who they were prepared for. I mean, I'm sure Pope Benedict could have wrote things that would absolutely melted our brains. But when he was writing, <laughs> he's writing things that he knows are for a more general audience. So he's yeah. making them approachable. Mm -hmm. So how do you think that his time as a professor impacted Cardinal Ratzinger and later Pope Benedict XVI. How did that impact the, I guess, the, the greater picture of who he was? Yeah, okay, I, 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 I'll answer that in just a moment, but I want to backtrack a little bit because I want to comment one or two of the other comments that were made in your, sure, your sure. conversation prior to that. First of all, you know, in the, uh, the uh, new edition of um, Cardinal Ratzinger's Spirit of the Liturgy, um, that Benedict XVI Emeritus wrote a, a, a brief uh, preface in which he actually thanked Father Fezio for giving him a voice in the English-speaking world. So, you know, so what Father Rich says there is absolutely true. Um, and so, uh, and then the other thing about his clarity, uh, that I, I'm always, especially I say, when 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 compared with, with St. John Paul II, He's much more accessible, and he, he actually reminds me very much in that gift of being of of, of big, communicating very complex, abstract, philosophical and theological points with great clarity. He reminds me very much of C.S. Lewis because C.S. Lewis has this great ability to, to to take abstract philosophical and theological points and and and. and feed them to the common man in a way that's digestible. And that brings back in there's the mention about his gentleness. Now, because with, with Benedict XVI, it's not just clarity, it's always clarity and charity, always hand in hand. And, that, and, and that's the glory, one of the glories uh, of the man. So um, that was my backtracking. I've spent so much time backtracking the conversation, I forgot what your actual question was. So <laughs> <laughs> that's all right. I, I think we lack the gift of clarity in asking questions <laughs> of, of our guests. Uh, it was it was speaking towards, I guess, his nature as a teacher, how his time as a professor, as a teacher, impacted his time as a cardinal, his role as a priest, and ultimately as the pope. Yeah, I mean, again, the, the very important thing, to be a good teacher, there are two things that are essential. And if you have one and not the other, then you're not a good teacher. 
One is you have to know what you're talking about. And then second, you have to be able to communicate what you know. Now, if you know what you're talking about and can't communicate what you know, you're not a good teacher. You might be a great intellectual, but you're not a good teacher. Um, or if you um, if you uh, don't know what you're talking about, but you're, you're a great communicator, then you're a charlatan. Um, because you, know, you, you sound good, but it, ultimately it's all empty and vacuous. The Pope Benedict and prior to that, Joseph Ratzinger, and you say his legacy as a, as a, as a professor, uh, he's he's a teacher par excellence, according to the, those two criteria I've just given. He, he has a knowledge which surpasses almost everybody, and then he has this great way of communicating that knowledge in a manner that those people who don't have as much knowledge as he, do can, he does can actually understand what he's trying to convey. That's uh, the greatest teacher's uh, uh, have a genius for that. And he absolutely had a genius for that. Now, I've, I've been privileged to, uh, you know, read through a number of your books, Mr. Pierce, and, um, you know, your knowledge of the ancients, you know, and, and traveling through the journey with you through the Iliad and the Odyssey was one of my favorite experiences at Ave Maria in my first semester. And then your knowledge of Tolkien, of C.S. Lewis, and and so much literature throughout history. And then your knowledge of the church, your love of the church, you know, it, it has just been an inspiration to me. What was what was your approach to this particular book on Benedict the Sixteenth? What did you want to deliver? What did you want to get across? You know, to to the general public. Well, the, the key thing, of course, is uh, you know, as you rightly say, that my 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 sphere of uh, experience. Um, I, I, I almost said expertise, but I, I, yeah, that, that that would be blowing my own trumpet here. My, <laughs> my sphere of experience, uh, you know, is is writing literary biographies or literary criticism. I'm a literature professor and teacher, so um, obviously this is outside that sphere of experience. So you might say I moved outside my comfort zone somewhat and the reason i did so is because i wanted to to defend the reputation of this great man and i wanted to do it in such a way that it would be accessible to fellow catholics such as such as i am you know who who are, are not trained theologians who are not trained philosophers who nonetheless owe so much to this man and to try to encapsulate in a slim volume and it is a slim volume it's meant to be digestible uh, it's not meant to be that the 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 definitive tone on everything that the ratzinger and benedict did it's meant to be an introduction and an encapsulation of the legacy that he's left to all of us the great wealth that he's left to us in his life and his work so I, uh, a question I'd like to ask is kind of a two-part question. And I would say, in your opinion, what is the greatest part of his legacy? What is the thing that he left to the church that is going to have the longest impact? And then the second question is like it, but what in his legacy is most attacked? What in his legacy do people view as either problematic, whether uh, they criticize him for any handling of sex abuse or if it's any of his perceived rigidity and you know in the in the modern climate so what are his greatest impact and legacy and what are the things that are most challenging to defend well i think i think that they're, they're, they're twofold and uh the, what his legacy is and I, and i think they are the easiest to defend uh, even though they are the most attacked because in fact the two things for which we should be most grateful for him are the two things for which he's attacked uh and it's no surprise um uh -huh. so uh First of all is the fact that alongside St. John Paul II, the tide was turned on the madness of modernism, 
which 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 beset the church in the 60s and 70s and the, you know the, the election of, of J. Peter in 1978 and then three years later when St. John Paul II announces uh, appoints um, uh, Ratzinger to basically be his number two effectively um, and to look after the doctrine of the faith. But what we see is a turning of the tide and I'm reminded of some words from um, G.K. Chesterton's poem, uh, The Ballad of the White Horse. And it's a, it's a point in the battle where the, the pagan Vikings, the Danes, I mean, are invading uh, Catholic England, Anglo-Saxon England. And it looks like King Harold's army, uh, sorry, King Alfred's army, that it's going to be overpowered, overrun by these pagans. And that will be the end of Christianity uh, in England. And then, but then there's a the turn of the tide. And, and, and the line is, the high tide, King Alfred cried, the high tide and the turn. And I think that the election of JP2 and then three years later, the addition of, 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 of Ratzinger as, as JP2's right-hand man turned the tide um, and, and, and saved the church from, from that madness which was besetting it and threatening to overthrow it. So that's the first one. And the other one, and I, go, I, I refer to some comments by uh, uh, Pope Benedict's brother, Georg Ratzinger, when he was asked um, what was the most important part of Benedict's papacy, and he answered, I said, well, what did Benedict think? I mean, I wasn't asking Georg's opinion, but he's, he's asking for the inside scoop, because obviously Georg's the, the, the most intimate person to, to, to Pope Benedict, his brother. He said, without doubt, Benedict considers, considers his defense of the liturgy as the most important part of his pontificate. So I think that the second part, apart from being with JP2, in turning the tide of, uh, of, 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 of heresy back, uh, we have this defense of, of the sacred liturgy. And of course, as Ratzinger in 2000, we have the spirit of the liturgy, which lays the foundations. And then we have uh, the motu proprio Samorum pontificum during his papacy, which confirms uh, his, his stance on the liturgy. And I, I think you also need to insist that that, uh, that St. John Paul II was basically endorsing the spirit of the liturgy because there is no way at all, uh, just as an act of loyalty, that Cardinal Ratzinger would have published anything uh, when, you know, when his boss and friend is Pope that, 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 that J.P. Peter did not know about and basically gave him permission to do. So certainly implicitly, if not explicitly, St. John Paul II was uh, in league with Ratzinger, not only in the, in the war on modernism, but the war to preserve and conserve and restore tradition in the liturgy. Very would, interesting. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Would you say that there is some reciprocation there that all the writings that we experienced from John Paul II uh, would... would uh, Cardinal Ratzinger at the time have that input with him too as well? Yes, oh, and absolutely. I mean, these two men trusted each other implicitly. Uh, they trusted each other implicitly at the time that Ratzinger was appointed. But then they had a quarter of a century of working closely together as allies, as, as basically brothers in arms um, to defend the church against her enemies, but also to build the church, uh, to, to be good shepherds of the church. Uh, and um, uh, there's no doubt at all for me that we have to see them as, as being comrades in arms and hand in hand. And we shouldn't any effort to separate them, I think, is actually uh, a denial of the reality of the situation. You, okay. you recognize the the enemy of the church as modernism and, you know, the other attacks on the church that 
both John Paul II and Pope Benedict uh, experienced and worked collaboratively on. I'm thinking of, uh, and, and your reference to the Danes invading England was just a fantastic yeah. uh, illusion, especially for people who are out there watching Last Kingdom on, on Netflix. You know, it's the, the visuals are very, very clear. Just for the sake of the listeners and those who are viewing on YouTube right now that are most definitely clicking the subscribe button, clicking the little bell, and making sure you're giving us a thumbs up because this content is incredible. Um, can you expound a little bit more on modernism and, and what the enemies of the church uh, for, for everybody's sake? So basically, I, I, the, 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 the latter part of the answer the, the, for your, the early question was the, 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 the two things that are most attacked are the two things that are most worth defending. So, uh, and that's because it's the, it's the modernists that are opposed to this work that Ratzinger, Pope did, did. So modernism, again, I'll, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to revert to the words of G.K. Chesterton. He said, we don't want a church that will move with the world. We want a church that will move the world. So modernism basically, um, and, uh, it does not trust the Heidegger Geist. Uh, it follows the zeitgeist. In other words, it does not follow and trust the Holy Spirit. It, it follows the spirit of the age. Uh, and what you could see it in, in, in other churches, other denominations, where, the, where the, every single branch of Christianity that has sought to move with the times has become irrelevant very quickly and has basically ultimately lost its potency and in the end loses its existence. It just peters out. So um, uh, the, the, the church needs to be true to the Heidegger guys, to the to the Holy Spirit, and to be the church militant. And we need we need, need to remember this, right? That the, 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 the largest part of the church, the most glorious part of the church, is the church triumphant. The church is already won, the church is beyond the power of evil, the church that we are hoping to join, right? Um, but this part of the church, the temporal part of the church, the part of the church that moves through time, is the church militant, the church at war. And we are Milus Christi, we're soldiers of Christ. Um, and and this this is a this is a, 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 a war, and we are an active service. We have a tour of duty, uh, and thankfully, three score years and ten or thereabouts, we get to get off. And if we've been good soldiers for Christ, we we, we join the church triumphant. That's what it's about. It's not about being trapped in time. It's about bringing eternity to time, and we do that through being obedient to the church and by growing in holiness and ultimately understanding that sanity and sanctity are the same thing. Yeah, it's like the spirit of the age that never lasts. It just changes, right? Because it's it's man becoming God and, and fads enter in and they always die. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I've heard the saying, the bride of one age is the widow of the next. Right, yeah. yeah. It, it, and it's and it's kind of interesting to, to contemplate because you know, it's it just keeps changing, like it moves into different areas. And where is its true identity? It's just like right. a costume party, right? You know, and and it's tragic because it's almost satire. It, like it, <laughs> the 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 heart the heartbreak of it is, you know, and, but the beauty of what the church is and what what Mr. Pierce is expressing is, our identity has been given. <laughs> you know, right? We have a very clear identity before God, and we have a clear mission. And the fact that we have that identity, rooting ourselves in that, in the practice and in the warfare of what we are called to in the battle, is everything. If you know who you are before God, like mm -hmm. you aren't going to change with 
the fads and right. the times and, right. and all of these things. I love I love that you've you've already touched on really you know your your second chapter already with uh, Heiligengeist and Zeitgeist and uh, the apology. You know, in in respect to defending, you know, and and protecting the legacy and the ambassadorship of of what Pope Benedict the Sixteenth uh, has done and has left the Church um, as a legate of faith. When we look kind of on a trajectory level of what the applications of Benedict the Sixteenth's contribution to the Church has been and where that goes from here. I'm just curious to see, you know, if you were to be a prophet of, of our time, Mr. Pearson, just give us a sense of where do you see these thoughts kind of permeating the minds of, of this next generation and and what's the impact to come? Well, the, obviously it's dangerous to play the prophet, but the only safe way of playing the prophet is to rely upon the past. So, you know, I've written a book that's not, uh, that's finished, it's going to be published that's uh, was late later this year by Ignatius Press, which I've called The Good, the Bad, and the Beautiful, A History of Christendom in Three Dimensions. Because in every century, there are, there's, there's, there's a battle going on, first between good and evil, but also the beauty. As, as Pope Benedict said, ultimately the only defense for the church are the great saints that she's inspired and the great beauty that she's inspired, the great works of art. So th- this is the glory of the church passing down through the centuries. The saints and the beautiful works of art, the you know, architecture, music, um, the visual arts, literature. Um, so the good, the bad, and the beautiful. And and so when you when you when you see history in that side that way, you look at every century and you see a pattern. There's actually a tapestry, and that plays out in every century. And you see you see that you know it's not a question of an ascent, you know, from a barbaric dark age to a glorious age in the future where it's science destroys superstition religion and ushers in a golden age of peace and prosperity that's not what you see in in history on the contrary the 20 20th century because of technology was the bloodiest in human history um and nor do you see a descent right but basically everything was this golden age in the past and everything's going to get worse and worse in the future um the, one of the golden rules is that there was not a golden age. You know, even in the 13th century, for instance, you know, the sort of high Middle Ages. You know, you had you had uh, the, the, the the pope and an anti-pope, and yeah, and, and at one point you had there were three three people claiming to be pope at the same time. You know, even as the Gothic cathedrals are being built. So, you know, the, 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 in any particular decade or century, you will see this struggle going on. So there's no difference at all between our own time in that sense than, 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 than times in the past. So what we do know is who are the, who are the, who are the popes that, 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 that are revered are those who have stood firm against the city of man. Because, again, this idea of the good and the bad goes right back to St. Augustine, but it goes right back to Jesus Christ. And he says, I come to bring a sword, and if they are persecuting me, they will persecute you. Well, those popes that have stood up for the city of God against the power of the city of man are the ones who become saints and the ones who are heroes of the church. And in that sense, we can safely say that that, um, Benedict XVI uh, is, is one of those great holy popes. And obviously, I hope and pray that he will be canonized, and I'm already praying to him. So now before we continue, uh, I just wanted to make sure that everyone knew that they can go to jpierce.co, and there's going to be a link below, and they can find this book. Or if you want to, you can go to catholictalkshow.com forward slash Benedict, and Tan Books has given us a discount code for our listeners. So if you use the code TALK, you can save 15% on this. So you can get this book at either place. There's going to be links below. So go and check this out, because this is, like you said, this is not a daunting book, but I think it is a 
beautifully distilled book. I mean, the cover, there's even some beautiful the cover images. Art, the pictures inside, high quality, great paper. I think it's a I think it's a fantastic introduction to a um, uh, for a reader to start entering into his writings, mm-hmm. <clears throat> entering into his legacy in a deeper and more meaningful way. I think it's a great starting point for a lot of people. And yeah. whoever your designer was, too, the cover art is just absolutely fabulous. The the font, everything, and just from personal testimony, um, you know, if you haven't come across Joseph Pierce books, take some yeah. time, order all of his books because he is just. Such a gift to the church, such a gift as a professor, and he makes things so accessible and enjoyable. And some of my most favorite classes were with him. So it's it, it's such a joy to see your work enter into a, a treatment on one of the most impactful popes in the history of the church. And God willing, will be a church doctor mm-hmm. one day. Mm-hmm. I'm certain, you know. And and for anybody else looking to find out more about Mr. Pierce, uh, he did a fantastic interview with the Catholic gentleman where he goes into his story, which his his story is incredible and absolutely something I really encourage you to check out. So if you you can click the link up there right now, and that'll take you over to that episode that I watched with the Catholic gentleman, Mr. Pierce, that was really wonderful that goes into your personal history. So kind of getting back into Pope Benedict XVI, when you were preparing this book and writing it, is there anything that maybe surprised you or something that you didn't quite know, something that really jumped out at you in your preparation and writing of this book? That's a great question. And I, I want to say also that, that, that I, I've appreciated the description of it as an introduction, um, because that's what I, an introduction and an apologia. That was what I intended to be. Uh, something that introduces uh, Ratzinger and John um, and Benedict XVI to people that don't know him as well as they should, but also to defend and, and that apologia, defend the reputation. So that's what it's intended to be. And I think another word you used was distillation and that that so the, that was also another great compliment because that's what i intended to do was to to distill uh the the the, the, the essential aspects of his life into a slim volume that's not going to be intimidating to people so so the fact that when you, when you hear a third party or three third parties there um you know it's sort of uh basically endorsing that the, the book has achieved what i i hoped it would then then that's very gratifying to me so so i'm grateful and encouraged by that now um uh i think i don't know i i was interested i didn't know much about the early uh ratzinger i didn't know much about the pre-jp2 ratzinger when i began the research of the book so it was a joy for me to actually come to understand that, first of all there's a continuum uh that he you know the, he, he he uh his ideas developed uh, so i sometimes think of you know like a tree there's um uh, there's, a, there's an understanding of modernism. We talked about modernism earlier. I've been talking in now because I, I, I understand it. metaphor for Benedict. So I'm not off point. I just I'm, uh, I'm perambulating a bit uh, <laughs> in good Chestertonian fashion. So uh, that that, that um, Tolkien said about about the 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 um, uh, the preoccupation, the the um, the I can't think of the right word now. The obsession with trying to get back to the so-called purity of the early church, which manifested itself in the 1960s in the so-called spirit uh, of, of Vatican II. And he said, I don't understand why uh, a sapling is considered to be superior to the full-grown tree. Hmm. 
uh, about the church, right? Oh, and he yeah. said, that even if the sapling was superior to the full-grown tree, if you chop down the tree looking for the sapling, you don't find the sapling, you kill the tree. So this is a perfect understanding of the, the living vitality of orthodoxy and tradition and how the two go hand in hand. And we see that with uh, with, with Cardinal Ratzinger. Now, as a young man, obviously, if you have all these new ideas coming in at the time in the 50s and 60s, and you see him manfully uh, sort of grappling and with, with, with these new ideas. But always, if you actually take the whole thing back, you know, he he collaborated under obedience with 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 uh problematic theologians such as Colvana um but you know never endorsing any aspects of 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 Rana's, uh teaching uh that was contrary to the authentic orthodox teaching of the church so what what i found was if the more you understand the earlier ratzinger you see a continuum like this growing of a tree with the, the with, with the full grown Benedict the 16th that we see uh, as Pope. Yeah, and I, I I can remember pictures of him. You know, he was one of the suit and tie priests in the 60s, you know, and it always kind of jumped out of me that, you know, and he was so involved in the Second Vatican Council. I mean, he really was a man of the council, and maybe he was the last, truly, the man of the council. And how that spirit of the Vatican II, um, how his personal interpretation of the council developed as well as his life went on. And you can see that his kind of culmination of how he interpreted the council could be seen in things like Samorum Pontificum and seeing the things that he did both in the liturgy and both in the things that he defended. So the, again, there was some evolution in Benedict XVI or, or maturation, or if it was getting up to cask strength, I guess you could say. Yeah. Mm -hmm. the, the, the phrase he uses, the, the hermeneutic of continuity versus the hermeneutic of rupture. And again, we go back to this, this, this metaphor of the tree, right? That, that, that whatever, whatever development of doctrine there is, has to be in accordance with the, the, the essence, the, the actual essential uh, aspect of what the church is as the mystical body of Jesus Christ. Clearly, the church can't contradict what it's always taught. So our hermeneutic of rupture is always going to be heretical. That it, it, all development of doctrine has to be part of a hermeneutic of continuity, which is, again, is exactly what, what, what Ratzinger was insisting upon as the only authentic way of understanding the Second Vatican Council. Do you know, I'm curious, what uh, what did you learn of Benedict XVI's um, point in his life when he abdicated his uh, the office as Holy Father and entered into a into a state of contemplation and prayer? Um, and the disciplines therein. What was your perspective when he did that? Um, what was your What did your research bring back? And uh, I'd love to learn a little bit more from from your perspective on on that season of his life. Yes. Well, first of all, on a on a personal level, of course, I think this is shared by all, all admirers of, of Benedict XVI. Was deep disappointment. In many ways, you know, much more deeply disappointed uh, at the news of. Uh, Benedict's resignation than the news of uh, St. John Paul II's death. Now, for, for two reasons. First of all, St. John Paul II had been very ill for a long while, was suffering greatly, and um, and we all knew that he was a saint. So you 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 don't you're not too disappointed when a saintly figure crosses the threshold from life to eternal life. But when a great man resigns 
from the papacy abdicates, um, uh, you, 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 you feel a great sense of loss because this was a great pope who you could trust. And all of a sudden we have a vacuum. Right. And, and we, we, we knew that who was fitting the role was good. But what's going to happen after? So there's fear also. It's a natural psychological impulse is to fill a vacuum with, with anxiety. So the deep disappointment. But then a, a couple of comments about that. In, uh, Father Fezio said to me when I, I was with him uh, a few weeks ago at Arvimu University uh, teaching uh, that he uh, recalled an, uh, an early interview uh, of Pope Benedict um, shortly after he became Pope referring to St. John Paul II's illness. And, and they, 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 the question was, would, you know, should a, a pope be willing to resign uh, if, you know, if uh, his health sort of necessitated them? And this is very early in, in, in Benedict's papers. He said, absolutely. You know, if, if, if a pope felt that he was no longer able to do the job, he should he should he should feel free to to abdicate the position. So and, and Father Fezio said that when he heard that, he knew then that at some point, and unless he unless unless um, uh, Pope Benedict died suddenly or young and, and got really bad health quickly, that at some point he probably would retire. So that uh, helps to put things into perspective. And as regards the various attitudes to it, I find May, you know. Pope Benedict made two distinct, I talk about this in the book, two distinct pilgrimages to the shrine of St. Celestine V, um, who was the, the, the previous pope of 700, years, 700 or so years earlier, who had actually resigned. So clearly, you know, Pope Benedict's having, shall we say, a, a conversation with this, uh, this saint. Uh, who who had, had already done what he was clearly at this point contemplating. And what I find ironically amusing is that um, Celestine V is the only saint that Dante places in hell in his Divine Comedy, um, because Dante was deeply disappointed when Celestine V resigned the papacy because it meant that the, that the, the, the person who succeeded him was someone that Dante didn't like. It was an enemy of Dante uh, politically. There was a lot of politics at the time. So you know, he 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 puts a Celestine V in hell for the great refusal. Um, whereas, in actual fact, and again, this is the whole point: is that Celestine V was a great saint but a bad pope, um, and um, his resignation was probably good for the church. The difference, and I'll talk about this in the book as well, is that uh, Benedict XVI was a great saint and a great pope, um, and uh, you know. So, but uh, I think that he did feel, and so something that JP2 said once, you know, said, well, can't you use your authority? And St. John Paul II smiled and said, my authority uh, ends when you leave this room. In other words, that there's a lot of corruption in the curia. Uh, and um, I think that, uh, that Ratzinger saw that as St. John Paul II became weaker and weaker, there was little that he could do against the against the corruption in the curia and i think benedict reached the same stage at some point i'm old uh there's not anything i can do about this perhaps we need someone to step in who's younger more vigorous who's going to take on the corruption in the in the inner circles of the church and then that's my personal reading of it along with uh, what, what what you say father i think he had a desire he didn't want the papacy i think he was looking forward to a you know a, a few years of relatively serene retirement after after Saint John Paul II's death and a new pope, uh, he didn't want the position. He he did what he he did what he felt he needed to do, 
Now, his legacy, you know, okay, well, I am Pope now. Clearly, I'm, I'm called to be Pope. The Holy Spirit has, has, has put me in this position. I'm going to do what I think needs to be done. And then when he did that and then felt there are other things that need to be done, I'm too weak and too old to do, mm. then I'm going to step aside and hope that my successor will take that that, that particular you know, uh, uh, nettle by, by the hand. Um, that's what I think. And then he lived that contemplative life keeping his eye, keeping his focus on heaven, on that final threshold that we, we, we all need to, you know, the memento mori, the reminder of death, four last things, death, judgment, heaven, and hell. He wanted to make sure that he was focusing on that as he reached the twilight of his years, and then that was the sort of thing that saints should do. It was recently revealed by his personal secretary, Patricia Ganswain, that uh, he was suffering from intense insomnia, during the last years of his pontificate, that his insomnia was so bad that he, um, you know, when he went on the uh, the trip to Mexico where he where he hurt his head, it was a it was a because of the insomnia and the insomnia had driven oh, him down uh, so much that he was in absolute terrible health and complete and utter fatigue, mm. you know, spiritually and mentally and physically. And that was one of the big contributing factors to the decline in his health and his decision that he no longer had the energy to exercise the Petrian ministry, mm -hmm. uh, which I thought was really interesting as someone who hasn't always slept great in my life. I know how it could beat you up. And then yeah. having the weight of the church on your shoulders and being oh, in your 80s yeah. and having that um, you could you could see you know you know you you could even look back down and say oh yeah he he had the dark under his eyes you know you could see it well next to the guardian angels and Saint Dymphna and Saint Joseph you know I think I think we've got a Joseph Ratzinger mm -hmm. Pope Benedict the Sixteenth to ask for his favors and intercessions when it comes to insomnia that's yeah. a good that's good to know that's yeah. very good to know. Mm. You know, so Mr. Pierce, how people can get in touch with you and actually bring you to to come. You take speaking engagements, from what I gather, uh, and I'd be interested in bringing you down to the parish one of these days. I would love that. Uh, then this this conversation has been quite invigorating, and to think we could actually do it with a pint of beer in our hands that sounds quite good. Um, <laughs> no, we're talking. So, 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 <laughs> so no, uh, yes, so uh, yes, I do speak uh, widely around uh, the United States and beyond uh, abroad as well. And so, yeah, if people want to contact me, they can find how how to do that at my website, jpierce.co. And you know the the conviction of your delivery comes through even the the video screen on your computer, and I'm and I appreciate the position of your camera because being a student and in one of those desks, your delivery and your hand motions were very free during this presentation. <laughs> so we want to encourage each of our listeners and our viewers to go to jpierce.co. That's J. P-E-A-R-C-E dot C-E-O. You can check out the show notes and, and link there. You, on that website, you're going to be able to learn more about Joseph Pierce, about the books that he's written, the impact that he's had. He's got a blog. You can you know secure a time to bring him in to speak at one of your engagements. And you even have a newsletter as well as a lot of these books that you can order now. Once again, we want to invite our listeners, too, to go to catholictalkshow.com forward slash Benedict. And what's the code that Use they Use the code put? TALK, and you can save 15% on this particular book through TAN books. Um, and this is, um, you know, this is um, a great way to get introduced to both Pope Benedict XVI and the writings of Mr. Pierce, because, you know, he's got quite a few mm -hmm. books and other things. Uh, we were we did an interview with 
the president of the Society of Gilbert Keith Chesterton. Um, you've written a book with him as well. A um, lot of great things, you know, for somebody who's looking to maybe stretch their intellectual knowledge of the church and to maybe uh, go beyond some of the things that maybe you've done in your intellectual safety. I, I know Father Richie speaks so highly of him as a professor. We can't encourage you enough, again, to go to jpierce.co and, and see what you can't find there. Um, I, you know, again, I want to thank you for coming on, number one, uh, for us getting the copies of these books. We've all, yeah, thank uh, you. you know, are consuming it. And um, for writing this book, defending, you know, and creating an apologia for Pope Benedict XVI because he deserves it and needs it. And I think uh, defending his legacy so that it can continue to have an impact in the future of the church is a very important thing. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. By the way, this is invigorating. Uh, you know, I do all sorts of interviews, and some are more dynamic than others, and this is very dynamic, so thank you. <laughs> well, let's leave you all with a quote from Pope Benedict XVI. We don't have the answers, but we know that Jesus suffered just like you because he too was innocent. The true God who comes to life in Jesus is with us, even in sadness, when we don't have all the answers. God is on our side, and that will help us. And we hope that this show is a help to you, and we hope that as we continue to share our faith and practice our faith, we continue to learn more and more as we interact with wonderful people, just like Joseph Pierce and each of you. To our patrons, thank you for supporting the show. Without your financial contributions, we would not be able to do this. So if you're considering becoming a supporter of the show, go to www.catholictalkshow.com forward slash Patreon, and you'll see all the tiers to support us. And we've got some really cool content to share your way, some coffee mugs, some hoodies, and some great items from everything Catholic coming your way to say thank you. God bless you, and we'll see you next week.